everyone, welcome back to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. We really appreciate everyone tuning in for another fantastic episode we've got lined up today, Jenna. We're being joined by one of the scientists. We love when the scientists can come out and join us. One of our scientists from Crew, Dr. Lindsay Van Sant. Um, Dr. Lindsay is the director of the Imperiled Cat Signature Conservation Project, which is a huge project. She also works on um, this really big spay and neuter project, which I know we're going to talk about with house cats. Mm -hmm. But thank you so much for joining us. We oh, appreciate yeah. your time. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Crazy big title. We always yeah. like, <laughs> we, we love when we have a few ladies from crew come and talk to us, and I'll, I'll learn so much, but I'll also just sit here and be like, I have eight million more questions. I yeah, still yeah, don't yeah. understand. So you guys blow us away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll see my title's shorter. My my other I must like my other title more um, before because theriogenologist um, was my staff position before this. So it's a veterinarian who specializes in reproduction. Um, but I love word origin, so you can't use the words they use in humans, like an andrologist or gynecologist, because that literally means like male, like human male oh. or human female, plus unlike human doctors, all of you know, any self-respecting veterinarian doesn't get that niche, right? They have to yeah. do a little bit of everything. So we knew that veterinary reproductive specialists would do the male and female side. So they came up with this word, so therion is Greek for beast, and then genesis means to create. So literally, oh. my job title was Beastmaker. Beastmaker. <laughs> oh, I know. So I kind of miss it. So I still, I think, have, like, I, sometimes when I sign things, I say, but theogenologist and director. Because yeah, it's I've never fun. heard that word yeah. before. I would just cut the theogenologist and just do Beastmaker. I know. <laughs> Actually, Billy, wonderful Billy from Maintenance made me a, a sticker that has Beastmaker and just surprised me and put it up in my office one day. So Amazing. it's up there. Yeah. It's really cool That's to awesome. think about that you're making, I was going to say babies, but, like, animals, yeah. animal babies who can help with reproduction. So it's one of those things where I don't really know where to start and I always make everyone tell us like, how did you get started in this? This is a really, really unique job that you have, a oh, really yes. unique field. <laughs> so did you plan on that? Just kind of no. tell us whatever you're willing to because I'm sure you did a lot of schooling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I actually wanted to be a zoo veterinarian. I always knew I wanted to be a vet. I'm from Kansas City. They have an amazing zoo. It's huge. Um, I think it's the only zoo in the country that still has space they haven't built on yet. Like, they still have land to deal with because it's the middle of Swope Park. So it's an amazing zoo. Um, but I grew up basically working at, like, a mixed animal vet practice in South Kansas City. Um, so very rural. Dogs, cats, a lot of cattle work, horses, um, occasional other things. Uh, but, yeah, so I went to vet school. I had this plan. I was going to be a zoo vet. Um, it's hard to actually get into zoo medicine. For sure. Even when you're in vet school, it's hard to find a position. And so I had spent a semester in undergrad living in Costa Rica doing a study abroad thing. Very cool. So it was, I lived on a dairy, like a dairy farm in Monteverde. It was amazing. Wow. So I loved that experience. And I was like, well, I could probably, you know, student loan, what's, what's a few more thousand dollars <laughs> worth of debt at this point in my life? It's monopoly money. Um, so I found this opportunity to go to the Johannesburg Zoo in South Africa. But I also look back, it's amazing I'm not like a Lifetime movie that I didn't get kidnapped because it was all talking on the internet, the website was definitely questionable, I just fly into Johannesburg and you know it's not like you had cell phones back then that worked internationally so I'm just like, well we're going to find this guy and see what happens. Wow, but you're brave. He was yeah. there. <laughs> he showed up. <laughs> Pastor Bob was there. So I stayed with an amazing family and I, I got to like go to the Johannesburg Zoo, they drove me every day. Um, but I realized really early I don't want to be a zoo vet. Um, oh, no. <laughs> I, I, I just didn't have any real exotics experience. You know, I always loved carnivores and, like, so, you know, I had all this experience with dogs and cats, so that translates to, you know, our canids and felids and hoofstock. 
Um, so that works for a lot of our species. But turns out there's all these other non-mammals. <laughs> and I was like, I literally have no idea what I'm doing. Somebody brought in this turtle that was like choking and the vet's not there and I'm trying to intubate it. And I like look up at the keeper and I go, I literally have no idea what I'm doing. Do these things have teeth? Like, am I going to get bit? Like, I don't know what's <laughs> happening right now. Somebody go get someone to help us. So it's just one of these realizations that I'm like, okay, not going to be easy. I, I loved anything I got to do with mammals, so that's what I joke now. If it doesn't have fur and it doesn't have boobs, like, I'm out. out. I'm out. So that makes a really terrible zoo vet. That's so, so interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I came back to vet school, and I was the president of, like, the zoo and exotics club. So I'm like, my whole life is a lie. Like, <laughs> what am I doing here? And I was, like, really stuck with what am I going to do? And then, like, it's fate, as it often does, sort of intervenes, and... This person came to speak, Dr. Dave Wilt, who was the longtime director of Smithsonian's Conservation Biology Institute. And I should also mention I had a few things in undergrad that sort of shaped this experience to be so interesting to me is that I always loved reproduction. Like reproductive physiology was always my favorite topic. Just there's this book like Pathways to Parturition of Pregnancy and there's this classic picture everybody who's ever taken a, that class, like a class like that sees where it's like what's happening in the brain, what's happening in the ovary, what's happening in the uterus, what's happening in other places, and it's all concerted, and I just thought, it's really neat. So I always loved reproduction. And then I also didn't plan on doing research, but to get into vet school, they recommend you, um, like, had some research experience, mm -hmm. so I just worked in a lab, basically, to check that box off. Um, but then I was like, oh, I like, like, tedious, like, benchtop work. This oh. is really neat. Okay. So I didn't do like any of my own research, just, just doing the lab work. And so that all helped when this person comes and talks about wildlife reproductive research. And I'm like, this is it. And I can't believe I had no idea this world even it's existed. It's such a niche. Like... It's such a niche. So I went from zoo vet, which is like jack of all trades, master yeah. of none. <laughs> Although I would like to say that's not the full saying. It's actually jack of all trades, master of none, but often better than a master of one. So oh, I like that saying. Yes, that's a great Yes, yeah, so it's, it's actually good, you know, to be so varied. But I went from this really varied world of wanting to be a zoo vet to, like, this micro niche of, like, just one area of, you know, this thing. And obviously I'm already kicking out all non-mammals from my world already. <laughs> but yeah, but I had no idea this world existed. Yeah, um, I wouldn't... I no. really didn't until I came here and found out what you guys do. Yeah. I mean, even, like, I, I get contacted by so many people now who are interested in this. Like, I want to be you when I grow up. And I'm like, I'm so embarrassed because 2008, Lindsay had no idea this world existed. So, yeah. So that was kind of it for me. I ended up doing an internship at the St. Louis Zoo. Um, it was supposed to be three months. Uh, it ended up being a year, like, in their research department. Um, of course, it was unpaid. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> Sounds about right. Where were you are. at like, getting your, like, becoming a veterinarian? Oh, yeah, Where yeah. were you at when you're doing, like, this internship or, like, making these decisions? Were yeah. you already a veterinarian? So or? I, yeah, so Dave Wilt came my second year of vet school. So okay. I finished vet school, and then after vet school, I mean, you know, I have all this debt. Why don't I go do an internship? It's <laughs> unpaid. unpaid. <laughs> and back then, um, I didn't know about like the the programs where if you work at a nonprofit. Although I technically didn't work at the zoo because it was unpaid, so it didn't matter oh. anyway. So I'm paying back my student loans. I'm working like nights and weekends oh at an goodness. emergency clinic. Um, one of my very good friends from vet school happened to be in St. Louis, so we basically I just stayed with her. I think I paid her one month's rent, and then <laughs> I did the cooking and cleaning, and that was how I paid for that experience. But yeah, so after vet school, I was at the St. Louis Zoo for a year, um, and then I was good research experience, but I didn't have a lot of formal training in 
you know, just asking research questions or like just writing grants or, you know, designing a study. And so through my sort of connections with Smithsonian, my CV got passed around and one of the researchers reached out to me, Dr. Buda, here's my advisor for all my PhD and I still can't say the man's name, right? Buddha Pukurinti. Wow, that sounds I know. difficult, so <laughs> I is. don't blame you. Yeah. Um, he's, that's why he just goes by Buddha. He's like, it's easier, just call me Buddha. Um, but he was interested in me and again, I look back at myself, like it's amazing I got this chance because he was a cat person, but he in the meantime had completely switched over to hoofstock. Now, my resume was very hoofstock heavy because I grew up working in a mixed animal practice. When I was in vet school, I actually worked as an equine ICU tech. So wow, I have all this hoofstock cool. experience. And even at St. Louis, a lot of the work was in zebras and Bantink bull and um, not pea horses, um, Somali wild asses, which are one of my favorites. They're so I, yeah. They are so amazing. More zoos need to have those guys. But yeah, so I have all this hoofstock experience, but I want to do carnivores. And so we're like mutual disappointment on the phone. Of like, oh... You want to do cats? Oh, you don't. But I was like, let's go. Let's go and do this. Couldn't get funding. Oh, so no. I decided, you know, I might as well, if I don't have money, do something I want to do. So totally changed gears with my PhD and did a project on stromatogonial stem cells in cats, which is basically... I was going to say, tell yes, us what that tell is. Us <laughs> so unlike other stem cells, right, you hear about all these stem cell therapies where they're basically what we call like totipotent cells, so they can be anything. They can make any cell in your body, and that's why they're useful. With spermatogonial stem cells, they have one job, and that's to make sperm. And so they're basically this pool, and then they kick out primordial cells, and that's how sperm gets produced. But unlike sperm cells, which you have a finite number, especially you think about either doing a semen collection or even if an animal dies and we're just trying to rescue that sperm, afterwards, there's only so many sperm. It's only so many procedures. With stem cells, if you can get them and culture them, they should be able to expand and basically be this sort of lifelong supply. Um, mm. And so a lot of work just doing culture, um, but lots of good like molecular techniques. Um, it's funny though, it's like I really didn't touch an animal during my PhD. I went to spay neuter clinics and just, you know, picked up my track. So it's a very <laughs> conservation oriented PhD, but like I didn't actually touch one cat during my whole PhD. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm learning so much that conservation is actually a lot more research-based than I yeah. ever would have thought. It's not necessarily like boots on the ground in the field right. observing animals. There's right. like a lot more that goes into actually conserving animals and plants for yeah, yeah. however many And the important part is you need talented people on both sides of it, right? You need those people in the lab that are willing and able to do that kind of work because that's very specialized and... Like you said, it's very niche. That would not be for me personally. So. <laughs> and I love it. And then you think about the other side too, right? Just community outreach with all these animals live that are in conflict with humans. And that's its own world that I would not be good at. But such an important piece too. So yeah, it is really interesting how many different buckets there are in conservation. For sure. Mm -hmm. But then so... You did that research through Smithsonian. What brought you to Cincinnati Zoo and our crew facility? Well, here's my like tip for the listeners if you're interested in these fields is networking is so important. So I was at a conference during getting my PhD. Um, I had a friend in grad school who was actually went to undergrad with Dr. Aaron Curry, director okay. of our pool, or just it's just now bears, director of our, our bear uh, project. So she was a postdoc at the time. But our mutual friend was like, you two should talk to each other. So I met her, chatted with her, and she's like, oh, you should totally think about Crew because my mentor, Dr. Bill Swanson, who's the director of animal research at Crew, um, also a DV and PhD, he was looking for a postdoc like within the next year. 
Um, and he prefers people with veterinary degrees because we have a cat colony, um, so someone has to do that work. Plus, a lot of our techniques are veterinary-based. So he wanted somebody with a DVM, but also with a research background. There can't be many of them. No, <laughs> and then cats, which are like my dudes. Wow. And I'm like, what? So the timing was just stupid. Like, it makes no sense. So basically contacted him, um, let him know I was interested, and the stars just kind of aligned. I actually got my email from him the morning I was walking for graduation, sort of popping the question, asking if I wanted Perfect. to join the lab. I'm like, that's wild. So, yeah. I, so I just have like no base understanding of what you guys do. It all fascinates me. But for our listeners, can you give us like the easiest explanation of when you came to work for Dr. Swanson, like what did you do on a daily basis? What were you hired to come in and like yeah. research or what would, what would you do on a daily basis? Yeah. So, um, a big focus for us is just developing what we call assisted reproductive technologies or art for short. It's kind of fun art. <laughs> um, we just have the art of reproduction. There's so many good puns <laughs> that come out of that. So it's a lot of it is just figuring out how do we do sort of these basic techniques? How do we collect sperm? How do we freeze it? How do we do artificial inseminations? And that even comes into the actual technique that comes into you have to sort of treat the female with hormones ahead of time and that varies species by species. And so a lot of our work is traveling, just going from zoo to zoo, you know, banking these cats. Most of these cats, um, you know, and I'm saying cats because that's my area, but obviously we have other animal divisions with rhino and bears that do very similar work in their species. But just trying to conserve these animals. And with semen banking, it's just so important because we don't have a lot of individuals. Most of these populations are really low founder numbers. So our genetics, like our genetic variability is low. Um, and unlike you think about the cattle industry or like these pocket pets where you're sort of designing these very, you know, you breed these animals with a specific idea in the end, you know, coat pattern or meat production or any of these. With our guys, we're just trying to preserve the diversity. We're just trying to maximize it, not lose any of those genes over time. So just freezing sperm in everybody, it's, it's a full-time job. Um, but, you, you know, and even one collection, maybe, you know, maybe the male urinated, maybe the male didn't make sperm, or maybe, you, especially with our small cats, we didn't get enough sperm to consider them banked for the future. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it's just traveling and doing that kind of basic work of just figuring it out. And okay. when you talk about banking, like, what all goes into that? Is that like a procedure that you're doing on an anesthetized individual or yes. are you able to do that? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So in with most of our wild animals, they're, they're at the very least sedated. So okay. with semen collections and rhinos, sometimes you can do more like a standing sedation. So they definitely have some drugs on board to kind of just make life easier, but they're not full, like on their side, not conscious. With carnivores, you generally, for everybody's safety, sure. need them like all the way under, um, under like a, we always say a surgical plane of anesthesia. Okay. So the same level of anesthesia as if you were going in and doing surgery. And again, that keeps them safe, that keeps us safe. Sure. Um, and there's a few different techniques of how to actually collect the sperm. What most species do, it's what's called electro ejaculation. So um, basically it's a probe, and this always sounds really, this is like, you know, the most, I don't know what to Invasive? say. Invasive? Invasive <laughs> part, right, of the description. But I'm so used to it that I'm just like, oh, you put a probe in the rectum, no big deal. And again, they're anesthetized, and this is why. Um, and so basically it has little electrodes on it, and if you think about it, your nerves, all everything in your body, it's all based on electricity. 
Um, so it's it's just basically calling a reflex, only instead of like the doctor hitting you know your knee and making you kick, we're just bumping. And again, it's like volt less than ten voltages. Like you know, it's like nothing voltage wise. It's just enough to sort of stimulate the nerves that are responsible then for the ejaculation mm -hmm. reflex. Um, and then yeah, you just do several rounds of that, collect the sperm. Um, and then again, it's very species specific how to actually process the sperm so it's able to freeze. Okay. Um, usually we have sort of what we call cryoprotectants. So things that you're putting in the media, the biggest thing is just sort of drawing the moisture out of the cells because as you freeze them, ice forms and there can be mechanical injuries, right? Just like this, the ice crystals can just damage everything. Just if there's too much water on the inside of like say the sperm head and it expands. So it's just basically trying to dehydrate the cells without killing them and kind of preparing them to freeze. Okay, so you say you're just <laughs> figuring out how to do that. So do you just like have samples that are not as valuable that you practice with no, and you're like, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this. Like, I don't understand. No, that's such a good question. That's actually why we have our domestic cat colony at crew. And okay. that's why we kind of cheat on team cat because we have such a good model. Um, all cats were basically evolved from a medium sized ancestor, like 11 million years ago or something, wow. which is short in the evolutionary lifespan mm -hmm. of the world. But that means that things are really well conserved physiology. And so we will assess these things first in the domestic cat, try different treatments, try different media, and then you can sort of extrapolate that. What we find is things that work in the cat often work well-ish in our other cats, but often we still have to make sort of species-specific modifications. Huh, that's so interesting. So what would be an example of a modification? Like... I have no idea what I'm saying, but like one, you use dry ice or I don't even know. No, like, do you, know you what I mean? are like, no, you're already on the thing. So <laughs> like a so, jaguar needs this and yeah, an yes. ocelot needs. No. So saying dry ice versus liquid nitrogen. So okay. sometimes there's pelleting techniques where once you have it in the cryoprotectant, you're just sort of dropping it onto dry ice and make pellets versus we'll load it into what we call straws, which do kind of look like straws, but <laughs> for a different purpose, you load it in the straw and then you're sort of slow cooling it. So oh. often it's like you sort of slow cool it over a couple hours um, and then sort of freeze it over liquid nitrogen vapor sort of stepwise. Wow. And then we have a newer technique with ultra rapid vitrification or ultra rapid freezing or ERF, which is the worst and ERF. ERF. <laughs> it hurts, hurts in your mouth, does ERF. We ERF the sperm. And um, that basically you just mix the sperm with the media and then you just drop it straight in liquid nitrogen after a few wow. minutes. How do you unfreeze it? Or thaw it? That would be the right No, word. people always say de-thaw <laughs> and I'm like, de-thaw is freezing. So unfreeze it is, is better. Um, How do you thaw it and not lose, and like, preserve it. Yes, yeah. and preserve it and Yeah, so when extract you're, it, it kind of, do, again, it's very species specific. Usually it's pretty hot water. Um, so if it's in a straw, you can just sort of put it directly in that hot water and sort of swirl it around. You know, each species has their own sort of made up thing in cats. 10 seconds, you take it out of the liquid nitrogen, 10 seconds in the air, put it in the water for 30 seconds, swirl it around, and then you basically cut the straw and the sperm comes out. Um, with these little pellets, you basically just put them in a little vial, and then the vial goes in the water. Okay. You don't put them straight in the water. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. And it's kind of the same thing. You swirl it about, warm it up, and then put it with some kind of like happy like handling. Medium. You have a wild job. It is wild. <laughs> I love it. We've only touched like the the surface. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's no, it's fine. And actually, I'll tell you this too. It's kind of fun. They only started freezing sperm like in the 1950s. No one could figure out how to do it. And the story is that I think it was a student grabbed the wrong bottle off the shelf, but then it worked. And it was glycerol, which is a really no good way. cryoprotectant. And that's how the world realized how to do this was an wow. accident. 
Yeah, so it's really the 1950s is how soon it's really been done well-ish. Huh. But That's samples, crazy. and this was bowls, but samples from the 1950s that they thaw now are just as good. That is unbelievable to me. Like, I just don't understand how it lasts, and then also... It can impregnate a female. Like, I, oh, no, yeah. it's why it really is. I go back to like again that picture with all the things that are happening at every yes. part of the body, and it's just like amazing when you learn about the steps of fertilization that that it happens. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. No, really. Like your job really is like a wonder of modern science. It is <laughs> insane that it exists. Like, but I'm interested to hear a little bit about some of the cats that you actually work with, like some of the species you work with. So you're part of the. Just to make sure I got it right, Imperiled Cat Signature Conservation Project. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that focuses on like five or six species specifically, correct? So yeah, when I started, we were the small cat signature project. Um, and again, under my mentor, Dr. Bill Swanson, he's been a champion for small cats. So I give a big shout out to him because historically, zoos, you know, Cincinnati is the exception. Zoos don't care about small cats. People who come and visit, they're like, yeah, it looks like a house cat. You know, it's people, always lions and tigers, right? I know, yeah, I know, yeah. which I love them too. But yes, yeah, it's like, no, they really are great. It's part of it is us just learning how to show them off better, to give them better habitats, to let them express natural behaviors and things like that that I think we just sort of put them in a thing in the corner, you know, put baby in the corner. Um, but anyway, so so Bill has done amazing work just moving the science forward. But when I came, it was sort of this realization of the big cats were falling behind. So, the, and I have to say these in the right order or I'll get it wrong. So <laughs> historically, we focus on black-footed cats, sand cats, fishing cats, palace cats, and ocelots. Those were some of our five signature small cats. Um, but then for me, um, jaguars have always been a very special cat to me. I just think that even now going to like feel a tag and you hear from the keepers and they'll describe how this works except in a jaguar, how these things work. And I'll give you an example. So jaguars um, are born with their eyes open, right? What? Yeah. Wow. So here's how I learned that. I, I was in that. Brazil, in Brazil, working with a wonderful group we work with down there. I didn't breed this female. She was naturally bred, but they're worried that she's pregnant. Her, you know, she's not progressing, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, we got to, we got to knock her down. We got to do the C-section. Um, so basically they don't even know if she's pregnant, but they think she is. She's not trained for ultrasound. So I'm like, well, let's anesthetize her. Throw an ultrasound probe on, and if she's pregnant, just it's time to go based on the breeding and all of that. So last she was pregnant, um, and then you know this baby comes out, and I'm like, we waited too long. Her eyes are open, you guys, and they're all looking at me because I don't get to be around like day zero old baby jaguars. Like right? that's not in my. That's unfortunately not part of my life. That's not my day to day. Um, I, I don't know how I didn't know this, and I'm down there as like this expert in jaguar reproduction, and they're all like, oh. Here's the thing. So yeah, they're the only cats that are born with their eyes open, and I think it just sums them up. That's a jaguar. They're just, they're ready for it. Always you. ready. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. It is funny, though. Like, you help with the beginning stages, and you don't necessarily get to see what, like, comes from, like, the end, so you don't get to see the right? babies all the yeah. time. So. Yeah, I get pictures. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I don't get to be there for a lot of it, so yeah. it's like, yeah. I'm the just end like, result. Yeah, I'm like, cool. I'll have to write that one down and remember that one for next time. <laughs> That's so interesting. I wonder, I guess, yeah, it just helps them be ready right away for, I as guess, a baby. Yeah, like... I think it just, it just sums up a jaguar. Their, their <laughs> eyes are always open. They're just, you know, um, Alexandria Zoo, their jaguar got out several years ago. And just this, like, uh, if you've been to that zoo and you look at his habitat, it's impossible. <laughs> it's it's impossible. I don't know how he did it because it's like this... Is imagine Amer American Ninja Warrior because there's just one concrete <laughs> circle thing in the middle that's way too wide for him. That's his, and he somehow went up that, and like still managed to push. I think they thought there was a storm the night before that might. They unfortunately didn't have cameras. 
But like how that cat got out of that holding, oh my goodness. I nobody there knows. Like it's like a mystery. Wow. Like they, you know, and of course USDA has to come, and even though they were already inspected and everything was up to code, but it's a jaguar. Wow. Jaguars don't care. So That's that terrifying. like level of uniqueness and yeah. that kind of challenge is yeah. injury to jaguars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so yeah, I always love a challenge. Um, <laughs> they are of all the big cat species. When I started here, and this is the royal way. This isn't just Cincinnati, but all the zoos, all the research organizations working on cats. They're the last big cat. No, every other big cat species had had successfully produced offspring through artificial insemination, except the jaguar. Oh. So I was like, I'll take it. Let's do that. So we did. So we actually were able to, working with that group in Brazil, um, actually produce the first jaguar ever from artificial insemination. That's in amazing. In 2019. So. Wow, that's a very <sighs> cool thing to be able to say. Yeah. That's amazing. And that was your work, correct? That mm -hmm. was your, like, art, so to speak. Yes. Your assistant. Yes. Assistant <laughs> that's my art project. <laughs> yeah. Yes. On the fridge. <laughs> yes. So that was, like, actually, it's funny. When I started here, and I remember Bill begrudgingly being like, oh, and there's this group in Brazil. I work with ocelots there. They really want to do jaguars. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, these are my cats. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll do. I'll do. It works jaguars. out perfectly then. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, again, fate intervenes in wonderful ways, so... For anyone who might be wondering, what would be the reasoning that you would need to art artificially inseminate one of these cats and, like, kind of, you know, explain why this is a focus? Yeah, so, particularly um, speaking to cats, um, anyone who even has a domestic cat knows that they all have opinions and attitudes and, you know, all of... And, and then they have claws and they have teeth, so... What we were talking about earlier, just maintaining genetic diversity is so important. So sometimes you, you have this pair that genetically is like a super team. Like they're just the perfect amount of varied genetics that they really need to produce offspring together. Um, but then you try to put them together and they're just not interested. Uh, if the female was hand-raised, for sure that that creates a barrier to her being able to read the male's cues or even vice versa if the male was hand raised. Even two cats that sort of were sort of normal upbringing, sometimes they just behaviorally mm. just can't get along. Some females just don't show overt estrus signs. Um, and then again, thinking about freezing sperm, sometimes we don't even have to move the cats, okay? So this cat is at this zoo, this cat is this zoo. Certainly you guys understand you work to build such important relationships with your animals, mm -hmm. you know, and then to have to move them every couple years, that, you know, and it's stressful for the cat, it's stressful for the humans. So if we can just collect sperm at one zoo, and if it's close enough, we don't have to freeze it. We'll just have a fun <laughs> driving adventure. I've driven from... Uh, Louisiana to Texas wow. to try to she did not get pregnant but oh. it was it was a fun day I uh, discovered the Taco Bell app that day so I could <laughs> quickly pick up my food at the one stop we were allowed to make I was like oh you can this was like the first time I think I ever ordered fast food on an app so I was like we can't wait we don't have time <laughs> we don't have time um, but otherwise freezing sperm so you know you've got a, you know a genetically valuable male wherever collect the sperm freeze it and then when it's time for the female you can just artificially inseminate her and you don't have her to actually transport that male. And this goes as well for animals that have died, right? So we have males in our population that never reproduce, but we have their sperm or maybe they're underrepresented. So same thing, we can help these males, you know, be represented and especially find them a good female. Maybe she doesn't have a male at the zoo, maybe she does, but they've already bred, whatever else. So that's kind of the main reason that we, you know, work on doing these artificial inseminations. Yeah, those are some of my favorite kind of stories you see through zoological research every now and then, is you'll see, like, uh, this animal passed away in 2010 and never had a baby, and then all of a sudden it just had its first litter. And, like, that's just so unbelievable to have stories like that pop up. And I always, like, it makes me think of, like, time traveling or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's magic. 
So you did do, well, is there anything else on these topics that you want to fill us in on before we talk about this really special, um, most recent project that you've accomplished? Um, I don't think so. I realize I didn't say any other big cats we like to work in, so I have to give a shout out to my Amra sure. Leopards. Oh, oh They're cool. the most amazing cat. I know everybody loves snow leopards, and I love them too, but I would argue Amra Leopards, so they're critically endangered. There's, depends on the estimate, definitely less than 100 maybe less than 50 or 40 individuals in the wild. So are they the most endangered? They're the most okay. endangered cat. Um, they're and actually... They're found in Siberia, correct? Yeah, yeah like, okay. like Far East Russia. Like, they're they're the smallest little patch of nothing is where they live. So they're, they're, they're beautiful, unlike their African counterparts. They're just so fluffy tails and the most perfect, like, golden yellow color. But they're one of my favorite species to work with. So I'm the reproductive advisor for them. So okay. we've never had successful AI in that species, but we're working on it. Um, but yeah, just another another one of our sort of focused big cat species that we work on. So I had to give. You I, yeah, I didn't out. realize that you guys were working. I mean, I don't know if does Columbus have a mark. Mm-mm. I always want to say a mule. Oh How no, everybody! Say I say Amur because I'm okay. from Missouri. Okay. I like some Amur leopard. I, I don't. Everyone a mule. I just that hurts. It's kind of like earth. A mule hurts my mouth. So Amur. I say Amur. Everybody's different. Okay. A mule is I think more people say it that way. So I actually okay. asked the um, the SSP coordinator and he's like I don't know. How do you want to say? That it. makes me feel better. Depends where you're from, I guess. Yes. <laughs> but do you know how many there are in zoos or how many zoos? I think have we them? have I don't know the European population off of my head. I think we have around 80 individuals okay. in ICA zoos. Which is wild to think about like there's less than 50 possibly in the wild yeah. and there could be more in zoos, which is one of the reasons that zoos are important and you're able to do research so that in the potentially you could help a wild population. Absolutely. So it's really yeah. important. Oh yeah, we're actually, there are reintroduction efforts. Um, a lot of the challenge has just been getting the land. Okay. And then, I don't know if you guys heard, like, Russia is just, they were sort of on board with things. They just kicked, like, WWF, like, out of Russia recently. That, yeah. oh. And so our group that's working on the reintroduction isn't part of that, but so they're just kind of, like, quietly head down, like, still there. But it's just, it's a challenge for where they live. It's a real challenge. Um, but yeah, really neat program, working on it. It's the Wildcat Alliance is the group sort of leading the way, but um, the idea is you would build like a figure eight um, enclosure, and so they were going to take a proven breeding pair from a zoo, so, you know, a pair that's already been together, knows each other, already knows they can reproduce, put them in there, let them, you know, be on their own, hopefully produce cubs, and then basically those cubs would never see humans. Um, so start okay. with live prey, but that's why it's a circle eight, so that the babies don't learn to hunt by cornering, because that's not going to work. Um, but then it's a, it's a circle eight in case anybody ever has to have like vet intervention. They could close off one side and just get the animal on the wow. other side to kind of limit that contact. And so then, you know, they have cubs. Generally two to three years is when those cubs would go off on their own. So they have a soft release site, monitor them. But you just think about versus hoofstock. Reintroduction programs are a little bit easier mm-hmm. because they don't need to be taught how to hump grass. Exactly. <laughs> and they kind of have that run away from scary things ingrained in them. Right. So it's definitely harder with cats. But I think Amur leopards are a really neat species, and one that I think assisted reproduction is really going to be important in the future. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. And it sounds like they've thought a lot of it through, and hopefully it yeah. can happen soon. I know, I feel like we talk about it every year, about where we are, but it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. If there's any team that can do it, it's your team. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's going to happen. So let's move on to this very, very exciting news about, well, do you call them 
well, I guess you could say house cats, domestic cats, like all fine words. Okay, <laughs> absolutely. So, um, well, go ahead and tell us. I don't know actually if it has a title. What is the? T I'm sure it has a title. What is the project title? Um, or, gosh, it goes with many names. Okay. So I think the overarching theme is looking uh, like non-surgical sterilization. Okay. Yeah. Although I honestly hate the word sterilization, like for basically spaying or neutering. Um, it's got it, connotation. It does. Sterilization yeah. just sounds so gross to me, but it's it's. it's <laughs> There's not a good word. So we typically say non-surgical sterilization, not that that really flows off the tongue either, but it's like, earth. <laughs> That's going to be the theme of the day. Um, so the idea is, in the United States, we don't have an exact number, around maybe 80 million there of cats that live outdoors. So basically unowned outdoor cats. Um, historic terms like feral aren't really correct because not all of them are feral. Um, alley cats is just a little... Maybe a little derogatory. Mm -hmm. um, so we tend to say, I, I say free roaming cats or um, community cats for people that are kind of like in the trenches of these programs, we'll call them community cats. So we have 80 million of these free roaming cats. And historically, and I should say this too, worldwide it's also an issue. They think there's about 600 million cats worldwide and about 80% of those are free roaming. So it's wow. a worldwide issue. And in a place like the United States, um, it's a challenge, right? So what we're typically doing right now is what's called trap, neuter, return. So the idea is there is a finite amount of resources. So the number of cats that are going to be present are going to stay pretty stable. So um, if you just took these cats out of their, of their you know, living space, other cats are just going to come right in. Mm -hmm. So that's why you trap them, vaccinate them, neuter them, put them back and then they can kind of keep resource guarding. And so now at least the cats that are there can't reproduce. Um, the challenge is, this is grassroots. Mm -hmm. This is hard to do on a large scale. There's a vet shortage both, you know, in, even in private practice, there's a vet shortage in research, and there's certainly a vet, re like a, you know, a limit for the vets that are involved with this. Mm -hmm. Other issues just with surgery, especially on the female side, it is an invasive surgery. Even yeah, under to put them right yeah. back out. And then put them right back out, exactly. And like, we want to give them pain meds, so we can't give them anything that's going to alter their ability to survive. Um, even under the best conditions, you do have complications, wound dehiscence, these kinds of things. Nobody's going to be able to monitor them. But if they're, especially the truly feral ones, how long do you keep, like, is that better? Right. So it's a lot of issue and, you know, people are doing the best they can, but we don't even really know what are the best practices where, you know, it's sort of a shift from historically, it's basically like a, you know, survive, survive, not thrive. And now we're kind of shifting to think more about welfare and like, this is not, this is not working. Mm -hmm. So if you could shift this where instead of having to do a surgery, you could non-surgically spay or neuter them, um, that would be a real game changer. And so there's been groups working on this for a really long time. Um, the Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs, and then the group um, who I've worked with as well. They're a wonderful group of people. And then the group I worked with for this project, Michelson Prize and Grant, or Michelson Found Animal Foundation. Um, so this is a really interesting story, and I don't know if I know the, the true one. So Dr. Gary Michelson, who founded this group, um, he was an MD came up with some surgical device that he patented in, you know, made all the money that we don't make in vet med, but yay. He was at an animal shelter and was just heartbroken by what he saw and said, we have to do something about this. Um, and so established this program to fund research towards this goal. Is there a way, single treatment, non-surgical, that would work in dogs and cats, males and females, and be successful to stop reproduction for the life of the animal? And so they have funded a lot of projects. 
over the years, but then if you are the researcher that figures this out, then you get $25 million as a prize at the end. What? That's the carrot. Oh my goodness. But even if you can't do it all, then there's a prize. Now, I will say this, I'm on the scientific advisory board, um, so I don't, I'm helping You don't with, get to I don't, count? <laughs> I don't get to count. I actually got goosebumps twice just now. Oh, yeah. saying, like, he wants to say, like, wants yeah. to figure this yeah. out. Yeah. He's an MD that cares about these animals, all of these things. Yeah. And then you're like, and you get 25 It <laughs> sounds like a movie. Yeah, so they actually, I need to go back and find it. They actually talked about this when this when they announced this, SNL on Weekend Update. They oh, actually no did a whole shtick about it. Like, no I've got to find it. That's actually how a few of the researchers found out about it. They're watching Saturday Night Live because the whole idea was this is going to take a whole way of thinking. Like this mm -hmm. is going to, you know, there's been a lot of work done over the years, but like this is like a paradigm shift. Like this is multidisciplinary. Like this is going to take people who don't work in reproduction to help and figure mm -hmm. this out. I mean, he so. wants to find the holy grail basically, right? Yeah. Like this shouldn't exist theoretically. Which like, is, okay, I, I shouldn't even say this out loud, but it seems like it shouldn't be that hard compared to some of the other incredible things you guys do. You're like, Dr. Louisa was talking about like separating this cell from this cell with a magnet. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't understand. Oh, Sorry. I love magnets. I don't know. This is, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I'm going to. So now it's going to be recorded forever. The last Fast and Furious like, they went to space in this movie, but the most unbelievable part of that movie was how they used magnets. That's what I was talking about. They were, like, using magnets. Anyway, I think magnets are, are fun. Fun science yes. aside. I don't know that the science in Fast and Furious was super based. But, um, <laughs> but I digress. Um, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. But no. wait, okay, so there, so it's still ongoing. Yes. Okay. Because you guys figured out part of it. Yes. So, okay. so kind of circling back to how this all came together. So, um... Myself and Bill serve on the scientific advisory board, and Bill's been working on this. When I came to crew, this was already like a passion of his. He's worked with several groups in the past towards his goal. Um, the challenge is not just pulling in people from multidisciplinaries, but cat reproduction, as we've somewhat alluded to, but um, it's, it's very complicated and it's very different than a lot of other species. So these researchers know how to do these studies in mice, and that's always important to do sort of the safety and efficacy and proof of concept, but then how to translate that into you know, the models that we're interested in um, into companion animals is really mm -hmm. challenging and how to monitor and how to know that we've succeeded. So luckily for us, um, you know, and I, I always say this, that it's sort of a holistic approach. That's why I think our team is so uniquely qualified to look at the contraceptive side. It's because you kind of have to understand the, you know, the goal of the reproduction side to also understand the goal of inhibiting reproduction side. It's sort of all, you know, yin and yang and all of yeah. that kind of fits together. Um, so we worked with a group through Michelson at... Um, Mass General Hospital. And so they were interested in this hormone called anti-mullerian hormone. And basically all mammals will produce it, well, half the male, the female side, all mammalian females produce this in their ovaries. And what happens is every cycle, um, basically a new group of the eggs, the oocytes, will get recruited and start developing, start maturing. Um, and so as they mature, they actually send this signal back to that immature pool that's like sort of, wait, not your turn. Which makes sense because whether you're a cat or you're a human or you're a pig, whatever you are, your uterus can only has a carrying capacity for so many individuals. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a cat, why would you ovulate 30 eggs at once? That's mm -hmm. a waste of energy and that would be a disaster if they all fertilized, <laughs> right? So, so octocat. Um, <laughs> so uh, the idea is that's what this is doing. But it's all working at this really like local level. This is all within the ovary. Ovaries are like the size of a pinky nail in a cat. Like it's all very low levels. So the idea was if there was some way to get this hormone up in cats where they could just constantly express it, 
then we should be able to suppress reproduction. So it would stop sending the eggs to the uterus to be exactly. fertilized, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're perfect. That's right. So, and the other interesting thing about this is males naturally produce this hormone from before they're born. It actually is what pushes a mammalian embryo to go to be a male oh. is ant mullarian is like the mullarian ducks are the female reproductive side. Basically all of us as mammals can either be male or female. And then the hormone cascade based on our genetics will push one way or the other. Okay. And so anti-mullarian hormone prevents the mullarian ducks from forming. So males produce this hormone from pre-birth and the levels stay super high until they're teenagers and humans. And so we already know high levels of this hormone are safe to express because half the population's already doing it. Wow, okay. So it's not like a, what's going to happen to these cats if they have mm -hmm. this high levels of hormone. We already know that it's at least in humans and basically every mammal, you know, through puberty, that's normal. So it's very safe. We don't need a lot. So it's a really good target. So then the question is, how? Yeah. How do we do yeah. this? Right? We can't just give these cats anti-mullerian hormone every day. That's not going right. to work. And so and then the other question is, how do we do this? And how do we do this for the rest of this cat's life, right? Because that's really the goal. There are things out there that exist that are more short-term contraceptives, you know, even sort of middle-term, but this is ideally lifelong contraception. Which is one shot, right? One, one shot, shot yep. for the rest of its life. Okay. Yep. So how do you do that? Um, one attractive candidate is gene therapy. And so this has been used decades in humans. That's actually what I love about it. Usually you hear about animal research is done in mice and then larger animals, and then it can be translated to humans. Um, but in this case, the humans have given us 30 years of safety data so that we could be more confident in using this in cats. So because anti-mullerian hormone, it's a protein. And so basically to make a protein, you just have to know the blueprint. And the blueprint is that gene. It's just the genetic sequence for that protein. And so we know what the cat AMH DNA sequence is. And so basically you just package it up we could have a whole other podcast just about how... <laughs> she's like, you just do this. With you just how do you do it. It's just yeah. that easy. Just collect that DNA. Just, yeah, just it's, like, all... it's like sending something through UPS. Like right. You just package this one molecule. I call it a magical spaceship. So, yeah, it's basically the same. I mean, it's, it's basically, it's called adeno-associated viral vector. But, again, we'll just say magical spaceship. Basically, it's just patching up the DNA in a way that when you just give a simple injection in the muscle that that can then go to the nucleus of the cell. And I'm sorry, where are you collecting this to package up? Did you already say that? Like, no, and I just don't no, no, understand. no, no, like, no, it's, it's all you? manufactured. It's all manufactured wow. in a lab. And this is not, okay, so I, again, the royal we, this is a royal we. <laughs> we being us at crew, we being the Michelson Foundation, we being Dr. Pepin and his team at Mass General. This is the royal we. This is a Dr. David Pepin part of the project, <laughs> is the actual production of these vectors. Okay. That's uh, liquid chromatography is involved, I can tell you that. Um, again, you have to know the sequence. You have to sequence out the pro you know, and sequence out the gene. That's where my knowledge of that ends. So okay. magical spaceship. Okay. So basically, it's packaged up. It's it's in this little. You talk about viral genomes and all these words. And so we're basically treating it so many genomes of this viral vector per kilogram of cat. So kind of like you think of an antibiotic or other things that are sort of based on a like body weight. That's how we sort mm. of decided on the dose. Okay. Um, basically, once you have this magical spaceship vector, mm -hmm. um, and it's in a liquid solution, you just give a simple intramuscular injection, and then that does the rest. Basically, all of those, those blueprints, the gene goes into the nucleus of the muscle cells. 
and the muscle cells go on like normal. Like Miss Kitty's genome is in there as well. It's unaffected by this. The muscle's still doing its muscle thing. It just now has a little side job where it's gonna produce this anti-mullerian hormone. And so it's just getting kicked out into circulation just by passively being reabsorbed. So it's traveling all over the body, which includes the ovaries because they're highly vascularized. And what keeps it in the body for their life? Like just the fact that the protein cells will just continue making it, but yeah. replicate themselves with that. Yeah, basically it just goes into the muscle cell and it just stays there. It's like a little, like, you know, it's like the instruction Like the muscle book. cells never die? Like you don't have to worry about it, that? Muscle like, cells, they're very low turnover. Okay. And so we're not just getting one muscle cell. That's why you're giving kind of this volume that spreads out over the course of like the entire leg. So it's like probably thousands, I would guess, of okay. muscle cells that get this. Okay. So yeah, for, certainly there are there is some turnover, but very little. Okay. And the nice thing is we have this data in humans. So there's gene therapy again. The first clinical trial I think was 1996. Um, even looking at like dogs, which are closely more closely related, the dogs that are modeled for hemophilia disease, I think 15 years, you know, that they've continually expressed mm -hmm. this. Um, so you know, it's it's good evidence that doing it this way, you can get, you know, we don't say forever in science, mm -hmm. but very long-term expression levels. Um, and so, yeah, we did this. We had six females that we treated, and then we had three control females. Okay. So they basically got the magical spaceship, but without the AMH blueprint, if that okay. makes sense, just to sort of control for that sort of a thing. And so we monitored them in a lot of ways. Of course, the first thing we were interested in, are they making AMH? And in fact, their blood levels were approximately 100 times higher than a normal cat, like than the control cats. Oh, wow. Yeah. And because of the data our collaborator produced um, in mice, we had an idea of what the blood levels should be to be sort of therapeutic because they really tightened out the doses and sort of found mice that expressed AMH above this level were contracepted, mice below this were not. Okay. And so all of our cats were above that target range. Okay. And so for all of them, we basically saw this expression pattern peaked pretty early. Like the first couple of weeks to months, it was high, it went down a little, but then it leveled out. Um, we have now four years of data. They were treated in 2019. I was just going to yeah. ask, how long did this last before you decide it was a success? Or Yeah, I mean, that's the challenge, right? We can't label something forever because right. then we have to be another 30 years before we can do something with it. So um, usually I think the first probably six months is really indicative of how it's going to behave. Okay. Um, if things are going to crash, they tend to go down pretty quickly. Um, but again, four years of stable expression feels pretty... That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so six cats got a shot with it with the AMH, I'm yeah. like, I have to say this wrong, and did you take blood work, like, monthly, weekly, or did you just leave those cats for four years, and then you decided to try, like, take a blood test? How did you, like, yeah, test them? Yeah, so, no, especially early on, we were pretty intensive with um, looking at blood samples, but also doing blood work, physical exams. Um, the first month, they were checked every single day. We were looking for one, just injection side reactions, those sorts of things, but we had a whole, um, like, you know, data sheet, just okay. filling out, checking for wellness, just because, you know, this was newer for our team as well. And it's just like, I think gene therapy always sounds a little scary to everybody. So overabundance of caution type mm -hmm. of thing. Um, but beyond that, they get regular physicals, uh, blood work, ultrasound, all of that stuff. So we're down now to once a year, just because we're at that point mm -hmm. that we feel safe. And we've actually adopted some of our cats um, cool. in home. So they come back once a year and we do checkups on them. But Somebody yeah. out there has a cat that's like making history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's more up for adoption. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, we have to talk about that yes. at some point. Yes. Oh, all of these were females. Yes. Okay. And sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but is no, there no, a reason we can't? No, no, no. I just like have questions that pop up in my head. If I don't ask them now, I'll forget. 
I'm our males next. Like I just don't want to throw you off and like no, interrupt no, you're your, good. So your timeline. We didn't tell try it, them. Like, we didn't try them with the first round. We were curious. So is there a reason? Well, again, remember that males naturally express high levels of AMH, and they will express it through puberty. So when they're coming into puberty, it doesn't seem to inhibit it. We did try. We had some. We were our next sort of step of this. We treated adults is we treated kittens, so pre-pubertal, and we, were cur we thought, what the heck, let's go for it. Um, no, it, I, I, it was a really small sample size, but the males treated with AMH actually started making sperm sooner. So oh no! <laughs> it might be the opposite, we might accelerate things. I see. Um, the nice thing is the same technology could be used, okay. just a different target, not AMH, maybe something else. Okay. okay. Um, and then we are thinking about other things, like there are in the past, um, they've used vaccines, um, against things like the GnRH hormone. It's like the master regulator hormone. The issue is it doesn't last. It works in a lot of species, but it doesn't last. It's a vaccine. Okay. You have to booster it. Right. But okay. if you could express that anti-GnRH antibody with gene therapy, that is something that probably could work. Okay. But it just hasn't been tried yet. Gotcha. So my, my question with the females that you treated with the AMH, obviously you said that higher baseline la layer of AMH should say that they are not able to get pregnant. Did you actually put them with males we to did. test it in practice? Yep. Oh, so, no way. Okay. So basically, from when they were treated, and they were already adult females cycling at the time, basically the one-year post-treatment and two-year post-treatment mark, um, we put them with a male, one of our proven breeder males from our colony, eight hours a day, five days a week for four months. We videoed it all so we could monitor interactions, have any idea what was going on in both times. All, and we actually used two different males, just in case there was some preference for each sure. trial had its own male, just in case there was some mate preference. Um, Personality in, differences. Exactly. Yeah. They're yeah. Again, it's, they're cats, so <laughs> they have opinions. Um, but in both trials, all three control females got pregnant, gave birth to healthy litters. None of the control females became pregnant. Wow. That's amazing. Is this something that you think could work in dogs as well? Is it, or would they have to have their own? So we're interested. The Royal We of Michelson thing, is, in, yeah, we're we're the Royal We are interested in it. Um, AMH is specific to each species, okay. so there's similarities, but there's enough differences I see. Um, that they and they are starting, but it's just in the beginning stage. They're, then obviously we don't have dogs here, right. um, so I'm not an active part of that study. But they have just sort of began developing it based on the positive results in the cat developing it in the dog so that okay. means making making a dog specific amh um vector and all of that stuff but definitely an interest this might be silly but i think it's amazing that i'm sorry was it which one was the one that um offered the 25 million dollar prize who michelson michelson, michelson. Price okay yeah I think that should be, I think people that have so much money, and I don't know if he is or if he earned, like had grants or people donate that, but like that could save the world. If you gave this competition to win money, people would like do anything, do <laughs> so much to like try and fix things. Anyways, I don't understand who gets to win that money if there's like you, like your team or whichever, a, a royal we, a group of people have figured it out in female cats, it seems. But then you have to figure it out and female dogs, male dogs, and, and male, male cats. cats yeah. Well, I will say this. Would it be so, a group winning? Right. <laughs> so um, so the collaborate, So our collaborators at um, Mass General, David Pepin and his team, I, he would still be eligible for the prize. And again, to his credit, like this was his, like he developed the initial studies. He, he identified AMH as the target. Okay. Um, he did the initial work in mice. So while we're helping, like, and we're definitely like, I don't, Let's say this couldn't have happened another way, but I think we've really helped accelerate it on how to actually s assess the effects in cats, safety and efficacy. Like, 
you know, I give the credit to David for yeah. his, his, this was his grand idea. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Are there any other zoos doing this? Are there any other zoos with cat colonies that study similar things or research? Are you guys um, like the, yeah, the so, zoo, the group? <laughs> Smithsonian used to have a cat colony out of their front royal facility. I don't know that they still do. And I think Audubon, but they don't have a research group out there anymore. Used mm -hmm. to have a cat colony as well. There's certainly other zoos interested in, uh, for example, the St. Louis Zoo is who houses the AZA's Reproductive Management Center, which used to be called the Wildlife Contraception Center. Oh, okay. So they're more like the database for contraceptives that we use in zoos. Um, and certainly there, there's some interesting overlap. I actually serve on their advisory board as well. So there's interesting overlap between these lady. groups. Yeah. <laughs> All unpaid positions. No big deal. <laughs> Yet again, it's a theme in the zoo world. Um, sure but yeah, not. so there's interesting overlap. I definitely have colleagues that are sort of participate in both of these and I know in other fields. So there's definitely like a nice overlap. And I, I feel like unlike other areas of research, which get really competitive and sort of cutthroaty, I feel like we're such a collaborative mm. group. Um, we all sort of excited for each other's yeah. successes and, you know, it was really nice when our paper came out, like how many like emails and messages I got from people. It's like, congratulations. This is so wonderful. It's like, thank you. Yeah. You're all on the Noticing. same team. Right? Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. But like if somebody were needing to do a semen collection or AI with a Jaguar, they would call you or Dr. Swanson, right? Like there aren't, <laughs> there aren't others that are so there, there any? Are, there okay. are for sure. I don't so, know if there are like just two of you in the United States. <laughs> well, we do, do we're not, we're not, um, what's the word? Um, territorial about our, we do have sort of our species we focus on. Mm -hmm. I don't think Bill would do a Jaguar anymore. He was always begrudging about the big really? cats. <laughs> it's not his favorite thing at all. Um, but like, so for example, we work with Omaha Zoo very closely. So, um, Jason Herrick there, I forget his fancy title. He was the director of their research program and now he's like vice president of like all the things. Um, but he, and he was actually a postdoc. Um, under Bill years ago, oh, so okay. it's a no wonderfully small world. Yeah. Um, but he he's the reproductive advisor for tigers, snow leopards, and black-footed cats. Okay. So we work with him a lot, um, especially because he's not a veterinarian, so he's unable to do the artificial inseminations I the way see. we do them. But we actually had a grant together where I trained one of their zoo veterinarians on how to do this technique, kind of increasing capacity. Oh, good. So we do sort of work around that way. And similarly, Adrian Crozier out at um, Smithsonian is the cheetah and um, clotted leopard reproductive advisor. Um, but we, for example, want to do a natural cycle on a um, clotted leopard at a zoo, Smithsonian being government and all their red tape. Um, it's, she can't just drop it, you know, natural cycle mm. basically just means we let the female tell us when she's an estrus. So you basically two days upon your life. She can't do that with okay. Smithsonian. Um, and she's like, yeah, if you can make this work, do it. So we all certainly very collaborative and in that nature, but we all have our species. We sort of focus on. Okay. But yeah. That's amazing. And just to reiterate one thing I want to go back to with the the female cats that receive oh, yeah. this treatment. Just to... Sorry. I'm just no, like, there's what? just so many questions. There's so many questions and stuff to talk about, but just to reiterate with them, this is all a naturally occurring hormone. You didn't see any negative side effects, right? No. Like none of these cats showed any nausea, upset stomach. No, the only nothing. effect we had is one of the females in the high treatment group, the first three days after treatment, she had small amount of edema or fluid where the injection site was, but it wasn't warm to the touch. She showed no pain. She ambulated normally. Um, and again, it resolved after a couple days. So we had a minor injection site reaction. Otherwise, we've seen no, like, blood work is, they get better blood work than my cast. <laughs> and, yeah, regular physicals, regular blood work, regular ultrasounds, um, everything's great. 
And so this was done for four years. What made you guys decide now? Like that, is there a certain amount of time that has to go through before you can publish or before you decide? Since it's, you can't say forever and you can't study them forever. Right. That was one of my big questions too. Is like, like yeah, why now? The peer review aspect to it as well. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, part of it was the timing. So again, these girls got treated in 2019 and then COVID happened and slowed a lot of stuff down for us. And we still had assays we needed to run, follow okay. up, things like that. And we were just going to do one breeding trial. Um, but then COVID and we're like, what do we do? What do we, what do, you know, we had to wait on these other things before we could publish. We were like, what if I was a reviewer and I was looking at this data, what would I have an issue with? Mm. And I should mention this too from the breeding trial. Um, we kind of expected that none of the treated girls would even be interested in breeding, but that wasn't the case. Hmm. Two of the six of them did breed. Um, okay. which we thought was interesting, but again, they didn't even ovulate. Cats are induced ovulators. So after they breed, it's when they ovulate. So the breeding did not induce ovulation. So that was really interesting that yeah. they did breed so we could follow that sort of mechanism. But we didn't expect any of the cats to breed. So then I started thinking, if I was a reviewer, maybe I'd say, again, we, the mate choice thing. Like, mm -hmm. maybe these other females would have bred another male. Yeah. So we're like, well, let's do a second breeding trial with a different male. Okay. And then it was the same two females that allowed breeding, but with a different male. Um, so I think that really strengthened our case with the breeding trial. Yeah. So what's next? When can you start this on these free roaming cats? It's a great question. So we actually right now are finishing up. We did, a, I mentioned the study in kittens. So it does work in prepubertal females. Um, but because we treated them prepubertally, we had to wait a full year before we could do mm -hmm. anything because you're not going to put a kitten in a breeding trial because sure. they won't get pregnant anyway. Um, so very similar results. Only in this case, all of the females but one allowed breeding. Huh. He, our male's very handsome. <laughs> I just have to believe. Bernie's just a heartbreaker. So, and he's a very nice boy. So I just think I have a picture one of my keepers took. He's up on this, um, like we have like chairs in the room and stuff like that. And he's up, and like all the girls are just around him at the end of the day. Oh it's God. amazing. Bernie, it's <laughs> a little Bernie. Um, and he's actually I go on tangents too. He's a fun side story. My friend was the vet at the Indie Humane Society. And so we needed some new genetics in our colony. So I actually went up there, collected sperm from cats that they were neutering, just street cats. So Bernie's dad was just this plain black cat named Salem. As any <laughs> of course, black cat named Salem. <laughs> of course. brought the sperm back, did an AI, and produced Bernie. Um, and he's just like magnificent, long hair, very Maine Coon-looking boy that's just like been a delight. So <laughs> he's got a little street cat vigor in him. But anyway, he's handsome, and that's. Not really how I'm going to write it up in the paper, I don't think, but <laughs> whatever. I, so other than the fact that almost every female, every female except one, and the one who didn't was actually his daughter, so she was with a different male because mm. she couldn't be with sure. Bernie. makes sense. The one female that didn't breed wasn't with Bernie. So um, it's Bernie's. But I Bernie. think that, like you said, I think that does straight, strengthen the case, the fact yeah. that they are breeding and you still aren't right. seeing Right, like it's, a, like it's yeah. very upsetting. I think Bill was more upset that he's like, I just don't understand. And I'm like, I mean nature, man. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's fine. It's what, you know, it's more than, you know, sometimes it is behavioral. But yeah, the fact that they're not ovulating, it's just, it's, they're not getting pregnant. It's really interesting. So we're actually interested in more of the mechanism side because we don't exactly know. Okay. In the mice studies, they did nothing. Like, the mice did not breed. Their ovaries were nothing. Their estrogen was nothing. We still saw, because we can follow them online invasively, we still saw estrogen activity. Um, so there's still stuff happening. So it's definitely different. So mm -hmm. we're interested in the mechanism. So we're trying to dive a little deeper now with the kitten side of the data. What in vitro assays can we do? What studies can we design to sort of further answer this question? So we're kind of diving down to get a little, you know, it works. 
but like on the science side, that's kind of where we are. Okay. On the boots on the ground side, the challenge is this was a proof of principle. Uh, it probably cost I don't know how many thousands of dollars per oh. cat to treat because again the liquid chromatography part. magic of yeah. making the spaceship the the manufacturing side is challenging. I see. Um, but like anything, when you scale it up, it becomes more affordable. Um, the other challenge is there's very many different versions of how you can this technology. Like there's all these variants, and there's all these factors at play of which one will be the best one in your case. Um, and so we're actually investigating. Now we sort of proved the principle. Now we have to make it affordable. So we're going to actually try three additional versions. We sort of did these studies to optimize out of like thousands of choices, which are the best ones to look at. And now we're going to test each of those and then have to do whatever one we choose of those. We then have to do like a final dose finding study to say what, how much do we have to give? Okay. And then the other side of that is FDA. So just like a drug that's going to market mm -hmm. for humans, um, this needs to be made commercially available. Um, it has to go through the FDA process. Okay. So the Royal We, I know Mike, representatives from Michelson met with the FDA, um, the veterinary side of the FDA, back in June. Initial meetings were very, it sounded favorable, um, but we can't start those sort of safety studies until we know what our final product is. Mm. Um, so probably, unfortunately, like three to five years. <sighs> I know. I know. That's, I mean, it's still amazing, but that's, yeah. it's like, oh, that sounds That's terrible. how the scientific process yeah, works, though, right? Yeah. It all takes time and double checking and triple checking. Well, right. And and that's, yeah, yeah, the red tape, too. Yeah. It's all important. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we're trying to get everything we can in place now. So the idea of this study, the safety study with the FDA, would be finding some larger shelters, like high volume, high quality spay neuters. And so these females would not be spayed, they would be treated. Um, and then basically, we don't know yet how long after following them out, regular phone calls, how are they doing, blood work, those sorts of things. So that's all sort of yet to be determined. Um, the nice thing is, one concern I heard from several shelters, just initially talking to them, usually with these studies, you need a control. The other problem is usually we're treating a disease. In this case, we're not treating a disease, right? Mm -hmm. We're treating fertility. Yeah. Um, so the I, if you were sort of thinking of this, as strictly as possible, a control for this study would be adopting out cats that are not spayed. And the owners would have to be blinded. So they wouldn't know their cat <sighs> is, is or is not spayed. And you lose certain number of animals to follow up. And again, we're talking to shelters whose whole mission is to reduce pet overpopulation. Right. And we're like, hey, you want to adopt out like 100 intact females yeah. and see what happens? And that's the thing. We don't need to follow them out for five years. We know what happens mm -hmm. with these cats. So the FDA was very, I want to say, like, sympathetic to that and so again decisions haven't been totally made but it sounds hopefully like we won't have to sort of do that because in this case it just doesn't make sense to have to do those sort of controls that's good news yeah it's really good and the other problem is usually they're doing efficacy which means they would want us how do we do efficacy all of these cats that have been with owners for put them in a room with an intact male and oh, see what right? happens yeah. we can't do <laughs> ask people for that so they're fine with um it sounds like in case you're listening, FDA, I am not saying you've said this yet. <laughs> um, looking at the AMH levels, because then we'll do studies here okay. with that final version and show, basically the idea is we want to try to find what's too low and show that the cats get pregnant. So we can say this is the therapeutic range in cats. Okay. So as long as AMH is above this level, that's efficacious gotcha. for the larger study. Um, because again, it's a challenge. This is like a very unique product. So yes. thankfully the FDA is sympathetic. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, this is a nightmare. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
Would you like to own a cat for a year, not know if she's spayed, and then we'll just bring an intact male home to live with you and see, see what if she happens. has kittens? Does that sound fun? Yeah. There's a lot that goes into a, into this that I wouldn't think of. And yes, that's a, I mean, you actually might have people that would be more than happy to do that, but and sure, there's a lot to... I will say this. I've been very like impressed with a number of people who sort of reached out and been interested, even like random, um, like I'm getting, I've gotten a few emails forwarded, just like people that are emailing the zoo, like proper about, I have a question about this and I never know how it's going to go, but it's all been really favorable. Awesome. Yeah. It's that is awesome. Such a cool thing. I know. I mean, like, kind of like you mentioned at the top, like this is a, an issue with 80 million cats across the country. I mean, that those numbers are astounding and you're obviously not going to have one solution to fix all of this but right. this is the first step in that direction exactly. right like it's a huge step so yeah hopefully you can keep the momentum going i'm sure your team's working your butts off <laughs> yeah. i love these to keep the momentum going we we have a donor article we write for or an articles we write for our donors and i'm actually writing on the next steps and i wrote keep the keeping the meow to meow mental meow <laughs> <laughs> so i love that's what you said i'm like the tagline tagline review that's awesome yes yeah, so think about there be cats there wouldn't be shelters full of cats that need right. homes. It's like such a good feeling to think about in the future that mm -hmm. there possibly won't be all these animals. Oh my gosh, homes. absolutely. Yeah. Like I, I love going to shelter conferences, both the medicine side and just like the, just from the working side. Like I used to go to the Best Friends Animal Conference every year. And like, yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, I talked to, again, it's always a challenge when you go to these places and like you're doing animal research, you know, because again, that's just one of those words that people yeah. just key in on. And I'm like, well, people key in on animal shelters too is a bad thing. Yeah. So we all have to expand our expand our thinking a little bit. But for the most part, when I talk to people, they're like, if I don't have a job, that's fine. You know, like I would love to have, not yes. have to have this job. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just really quickly before we get to our last question of the day, um, could you provide some potential information about adopting some That's of these cats? That's why I wanted to talk about it. I was like, wait, why not? No. Yes. Yeah, yes. Well, let me hear yeah. you mention yes, that. Like, yes, yes, yes. So we... And not only these stuff. Yes, we... But. Yes, so we, um, we love our cats. We work really hard to get them socialized. I would argue they're actually, like, more grateful than your average cat because where our facility is in a basement, cats are... I'm just saying this... Let me just take 10 minutes. Cats are seasonal <laughs> breeders. Light affects how they breed. So they don't get natural light like down in our basement. Oh, okay. So, and, and sometimes our cats do go to other facilities. You know, like I, you know, we take cats over to med vet if there's a special medical need or something. For the most part, they spend their lives, you know, downstairs. And so, like, I've adopted three crew cats over the years. And it's so fun to see, like... The tr it's like the Truman Show, right? Like, they're like, the world is bigger than this. And, like, they get to look out the window, and it's exciting. One of my cats became self-aware and started looking at her reflection in the mirror because we don't really have reflective Aww. surfaces. Okay. She just stares at herself all day long, and she knows it's her. <laughs> she just loves herself. So, anyway, they're wonderful, they're wonderful, joyful animals to bring home. We adopt all of our cats after we're done with studies. Um, I Oh, gosh, I hope I don't get this wrong. I think it's Crew Cat. So C-R-E-W-C-A-T at CincinnatiZoo.org. Um, you can email that email website. Um, email that email website. Um, <laughs> and um, our colony manager will get right back to you. But yeah, we have cats from this. Now, cats from the non-surgical sterilization studies, we do have the stipulation they should be in the Cincinnati area because, again, we want to bring them back once a year. Uh, physicals, blood work, ultrasound, all of that's at no cost. Um, but our other cats... Take them wherever you want. <laughs> Take them on a boat. I think they'd love it. So anyway, yeah, and we don't do adoption fees. They will be up to date, um, up to date on all their vaccines. You'll get a nice like synopsis of sort of these are the research projects they've helped with. Um, and anybody that's not in these particular studies will be spayed or neutered before we adopt mm -hmm. them out. 
Um, but of course, for the non-surgical sterilization, they will be intact um, that we'll want to keep monitoring. Eventually, probably I would anticipate three-ish more years is when that sort of monitoring program will be done and then we would spay them at no cost at, at crew as okay. well. So. It's interesting. Are they more socialized than most cats, would you say, because there are people working with them daily and going in and they're I with would. other I think cats? We still, or have are a, they... we still have a few that are shy. I would okay. say we just we hired a new colony manager in January, Christina Bunner, who's been great. She came from the shelter world, Okay. Uh, and she's very much a cat person. She has worked at many shelters doing their behavior and enrichment work, um, so I think she's brought us a long way. Um, but yeah, our, I think overall we work pretty hard. Our cats are pretty darn spoiled. Um, we, like I said, we still have a few like shy ones that we just can't seem to quite crack that just nut. personality. Um, but yeah, they definitely get to meet people every day, meet lots of new people. Um, so now I might, yeah, I, I think they're better than the average <laughs> I'm not biased at all, but I just took my, actually one of our breeder males is who I adopted. He's, he was not Bernie. Bernie's still doing his Bernie thing. When Bernie's done, I want Bernie. <laughs> he's a hand, I'll show you a picture of him. He's a handsome boy, but, um, my boy, my boy's Roger is pretty handsome too, but yeah. Um, no, they're just the loveliest, wonderful. Highly recommend. That's awesome. <laughs> so Crew thank you for asking that. CrewCat at CincinnatiZoo.org. Got you. Awesome. That's I wonder great. if you'll well, get a bunch of new adoptions after this. I would love to. This, <laughs> I would love to. That would be fantastic. Yeah, and then actually it's your it's your backstage ticket because you get to come to Crew. Yeah. You get to see you know you get to see Crew. You get to see our cat colony and meet the cats. And if you've never stood in a room with like twelve cats before. I find it to be a wonderful experience. Some people get a little nervous. Can Mark but... and I come? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> I'm trying to go like right now. Like, yes. Can we, can we cut go. this episode off Let's right go. Now? <laughs> let's, let's we go. do this all the time and we never follow up, but we have to follow up. <gasps> oh my God. Okay. Please come visit. We love, they love meeting people, so. Great. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to us and explaining all of this and answering all of my questions and for all the work you do. It's definitely like changing the lives and changing the world of changing the lives of all of these cats and the world. But um, we do have a final question. Yes. What can I do? How can I be a better steward of the earth? Something small. All right. My something small suggestion is when you go out to eat, bring food containers with you. They're actually a lot better than the ones the restaurant gives you, so then you don't spill your spaghetti halfway home. And you just <laughs> keep reusing them and reusing them, and you just think about over the course of your life how much plastic and styrofoam waste that gets rid of. Plus, think about when you go home and put it in the fridge. If it's in that, it's going to get all dry and gross. So and if it's, it's in styrofoam, yeah. you can't warm it up. You so can't you have to warm get it another up. dish dirty, exactly. so you might as well already exactly. have it in that dish. Exactly. That's such a good one. Yeah, yeah. something that's so easy. It's, it takes a little forethought. It does. I keep containers... In my car. <laughs> it's kind of like the shopping bags, right? You just right, keep yeah. them in the car. I have like eight versions. They exist everywhere. <laughs> yes. Um, Wait, yeah. I have to ask, do you take them into the restaurant? I do. Ahead of time I have or a you big run to your car? No. So I have a, as I said, <laughs> I have a big purse, which makes it a little easier. But places I find really find it endearing or sometimes they're like, wow, that's really nice. Like, oh, I brought it from home. And they're like, oh, okay. I didn't think we had that here. So, yeah. That's no, an easy I one. I love that. I am like very jealous and upset with myself that I never thought of that. Right. That is something that is so simple. And I don't know how many times I've used the plastic containers or the styrofoam containers from a restaurant. Right, and that's yeah. all just waste. And yeah. it's such an easy solution. I love it. I'm going to start doing that tonight. Going yeah. out to eat. I go rarely out to eat. have Everybody leftover, go out so yeah. I don't need them now. But that's a great idea, and I, I should start doing that for sure. Well, then, even if you're like an olive garden, you know, just now you <laughs> yes. grab those breadsticks. Breadsticks, <laughs> yes. I'm out of breadsticks again. So you can make leftovers. You just have to yes. be creative so about I should it. take <laughs> Tupperware or reusable 
and take leftovers home. But um, thank you so much. You this has been welcome. so been inspiring yeah. and awesome to hear. I've learned a lot. Still have no actual understanding of what you do, but no. I feel like you do. I feel like you said all the words. So either we're both confused or you know what you're talking about. So. Uh, well, absolutely. Very inspirational. Very informative. I've loved learning from you today. This has been awesome. We know you're insanely busy. So yes. thank you so much for taking your time to come and chat with us. For real. Oh, wait. I wanted to ask, is the jaguar, in fact, your favorite cat, or do you have a favorite cat species? See, yeah, it's this is how I say. I say the jaguar is my favorite cat, the armor leopard is my favorite snow cat, and the sand cat is my favorite small cat. But I could keep going. So you're, yeah, so yeah. I love it. I, I, love it. I, I rotate. Yes. I hate when I go places and they're like, like feel a tag, though. what's your favorite cat? I... You yeah. freeze. <laughs> I freeze. I'm like, I have to ask what everyone else from my team is saying so that I make sure we represent. Because I feel like I'm, t I'm turning everybody to these cats. They're like, yes, these are the best cats. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Can I just say real quick, this, you saying the sand cat, I started at Night Hunters, and the sand cats at Night Hunters will always have my heart. Oh, my goodness. They're my dudes. They're precious. They're <laughs> well, not to brag, but I also made the first sand cats for wow. artificial insemination. No, please Very brag. Cool. That's yes, incredible. Brag. I knew the jaguar one. I did not know the sand cat as well. Yeah. That's amazing. I like to brag about milking a hippo. That's like, <laughs> that if is, I made a cat, That is worthy. The, the C-section on that jaguar I mentioned, like, we were trying to milk her, and... And, oh, uh, yeah. I'm a dairy girl, so I grew up, like, my grandparents were dairy farmers. I was in Costa Rica at a dairy farm. I could not milk that huh. jaguar. So you brag <laughs> all day it's long about that. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Lindsay, so much oh, yeah. for being here. Dr. Lindsay Van Sant, thank you so uh, much. We'll be sending yes. you a meeting request to meet Please the do. cat colony. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everyone. Have a wonderful day. Yes, until next time. Take care.